The Cyber Menace podcast is for educational purposes only. The views expressed by hosts and guests are their own, not necessarily their employers. Advice discussed is general advice. We promote ethical discussions, not illegal activities. Listen responsibly. Well, welcome back to the Cyber Minutes podcast. We have Flynn, Flynn, and myself, Max, as always. So let's start this off uh, with a little bit of a chat around some recent events, such as the 23andMe breach that's just happened this week. I'll let Flynn start us off. Uh, yeah, so we all know that data breaches aren't good, but I think that this one really highlights how some data breaches can be scary and this data breach can potentially be really scary, you know, 20 to 30 years down the time, down the line, uh, just because of the data that was breached, which was basically genetic information. So you could find the race of people online, yeah. which is obviously very scary. You know, the world's not a perfect place. There's a lot of people that have their prejudices. Yeah. And to think that, you know, 20 years down the line, some random guy who maybe anti-Semitic could just pick up a piece of information about someone mm. and target someone based off that is very scary. And the yeah. fact that that data wasn't taken seriously is also Equal. very scary. Yeah, exactly. And I think the the scary, even more scary thing, if we're saying scary so many times, is also that you're not just losing your passwords or your, you know, and those things you can change. This is something you can't change. You can't change your ancestry. You can't change your history. And... We don't know if the malicious act is telling the truth or not, but he said at 23andMe, the company, their data was very easy to break into. And he said in his words that the data is safer in his hands than it is in 23andMe's hands, whatever that could possibly mean. But no, losing your ancestry data online is no joke. And like Flynn said, in 20 years, you don't want people knowing your ancestry and maybe holding that against you in whatever the world will be then. Yeah, it could potentially hold you back in professional sense. It could hold you back in... It's just a scary thing to have. It's always going to, you know, psychologically damage people in the future. Yeah. Yes, real serious ones that you're losing. Do we know of any of, like, the more severe effects that it could have right now beyond these sort of, like... Well, I mean, if you're talking in the current geopolitical environment, yeah. certain, certain, I won't say who, but certain ethnic groups are being persecuted based on ancestry so if there were people that are revealing or losing their ancestral data online then you know it makes it easy to pick and choose people yeah yeah there's definitely like a big avenue for using this data to be prejudiced and discriminatory but i guess i'm wondering like what are what other thing do we know like is there is there i think another scary thought is that obviously this guy could probably get bribed and that information is probably going to be valuable to a government entity. And they've, mm-hmm. a lot of them have unlimited resources. Yeah. Yeah. So what if, you know, a big malicious actor buys it and then, you know, they just keep it under wraps for a while. I think this also goes back to what we've said previously, where does certain information need to be online? No. You want to find out that you're like 10% French, is it really worth it? Yeah. <laughs> and is it worth knowing that you're related to, you know, Mickey McGee, yeah. When you know, what if Mickey McGee did war crimes, right? And then, <laughs> then suddenly you're in the shit because you know everyone knows you're related to him. Yeah. So I think answering Flynn's question a little bit, I don't actually think we fully we yeah. are going to be able to fully understand the effects of this. That's all. 
But, but I think that even just the residual psychological damage of the victims, even if nothing ever happened to it, you've got that in the back of your mind of someone could do it. Track my family history. Yeah. 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 That, that, that is and you have, no, you have no power over it. No, really no exactly. On a slightly lighter note, let's move on to the disconnect between governance and technical cybersecurity professionals. Yeah. So we were having a chat about this a little bit before offline. We were calling it a bottleneck, <laughs> which I don't think it's called a bo- bottleneck, but <laughs> I think it's like a multiplicative sort of factor where if your governance and technical people are both there, get along, communicate well, it greatly uplifts the business. And then if you are really poor in one or the other, then that actually really, really drags your business down a lot in terms of not only technical, but also managerial. Managerial. Every, every. Um, yeah. So something I've often seen in a lot of the companies I've worked for is that they typically, a lot of the times they're butting heads, they're neck and neck with each other, yeah. which just doesn't really work. I kind of get it because, you know, being a more governance focused person myself, I'm sure a lot of people don't like being told what to do. So it's <laughs> Um, especially if it's coming from someone where you think like, oh, you don't know what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think, to, yeah, I think there's a lot of egos involved and, you know, emotions. But at the end of the day, you need both. An example I used with someone recently, it was a tech, more technical person who was brilliant technically, but didn't really understand the importance of governance. And they kind of said, well, a lot of this is just fluff that we're just using to get past the line with regulation, which sometimes may be the case. We've made the example to them that, hey, if you had a cyber incident right now, who would you notify? And they basically said, oh, we would notify the stakeholders. And they're like, oh, would you know what regulatory bodies, blah, blah, blah. Like, obviously, we came to the conclusion of you would need to go straight to the AFP. Yeah. But they couldn't tell us that. And that's the case at a lot of industries where, or companies, sorry, where, you know, they have these things in place. And it's a similar thing of, you know, if Max from Max Industries... He knows everything. So if something happened, he could handle it. But, you know, what if Max got hit by a bus tomorrow? What if they had to bring someone else in? Yeah. You need the documentation in place so that that person can then understand what's going on. Um, if you don't have that, you know, you've got a major risk where if somebody decides to quit, something happens to that person. You're I'm going to make trial of both ways before crossing yeah. the street tomorrow, <laughs> just in case. So Max <laughs> Industries is in trouble. Yeah. But yeah. No, I think that's a really good point. And I think that if you, you know, don't even... If you had at least a techni- uh, non-technical cyber professional in that company you're talking about, they would at least be able to know from the crisis management, from the managerial governance point of view, that they need to, you know, which authority yeah. authorities they need to. So to put into context, this company was a small technical-based company, like right. three to four employees. So okay. they're really only just starting to realize these things because yeah. even though they're a small company, they look after a lot of stuff. Yeah. And um, people have been asking, like, hey, you need to have these things in place. And, you know, a lot of people get caught up with, you know, they're busy and stuff like that. And yeah, yeah. obviously doing this stuff is doesn't have the clear, direct yeah. profit margins because, you know, it's pre-incident. So in that case as well, like I was saying with the multiplicative sort of index, is, uh, is having just one person who's a more governance-focused individual or professional, they're going to you know, drastically improve their, their... Yeah. But I think the, I think a big part of it is just being open-minded to yeah. both sides. Yeah. Um, and also looking for advice 
when you need it. Mm. If you don't know how to do something, just look for that advice. Yeah. Or get somebody in. Obviously, that can be expensive sometimes. But yeah, yeah I was I was looking at the other side of this argument, more the all government governance, no technical side of it. And there's issues there as well. Um, this company that I was looking at had a pretty great aware- awareness of their need for cybersecurity and and management strategies and all that stuff. And they knew they needed the, a bit of technical side. But the issue is, is that they had to outsource it. And they outsourced it to one company who outsourced it to another company and to another company. So then you had this whole trust chain where this original small company was having their cybersecurity managed so far with such a long chain that they really had no clue what was going on. They were getting some reports from the uh, the security provider. And, and, you know, these reports were just nonsense. They're all fluff. It was it was all this big zero of, of oh no incidents. Oh and and there was actually one in there was actually one incident on this report. But they didn't tell you really what that was in simple terms. The governance people knew they needed a technical side and they did their best to keep get that technical in place, but unfortunately they had to outsource it. Yeah. It's not easy sometimes where resourcing comes involved as well. I assume that just the way you described it, it sounds like a bit of an older industry. Yeah, yeah. This sounds like a bit of an. They know the governance stuff because they've been around for so long, but they just need to have that technical aspect. Yeah, I think that also creates a bit of a Tetris kind of game. What that makes a Tetris tower almost. If you're outsourcing everything and you're outsourcing every you know, little technical aspect of it, you're not only you know creating lots of fluff and kind of weird communication chain, but you're also spreading your risk. Yeah, exactly. And it only takes one of the important. Tetris blocks to come out before you know all of your everyone coming down. Finally enough, when you say that, when you described, um, you know, they're getting everything outsourced technically. I think a solution to that sometimes can be more governance because then you <laughs> <laughs> they write the. But I assume it's the problem is is that nobody understands yeah, technical. Yeah, there, there was there's just no technical understanding with within the company. They they understand that they need it, but they just have no idea how to implement it. Like there was a there was a um. I wouldn't call it a typo, but it was just at one point in one of the things I was reading, it said, we don't do any of our own programming, which was just sort of a dog whistle that they just have never even looked at a piece of code before Mm. or or looked at like anything technical. And, you know, that's fine, but it's a difficult thing to manage. It's sort of a conundrum. You know, it's easy to say these things that you need to have both, but when you get those smaller companies, it's, you know, get those people that understand both a bit of a goldmine because they understand the importance of both and they can understand it to a degree. Which said, yeah. There are people that can do that. But. Yeah, but... We'll stop them from going to a, another company that's going to pay them now, yeah. right? Exactly. Yeah. yeah, I think it's this whole thing of a lot of the world doesn't have enough tech literacy and I think that's one thing that will change, but I think it's some of the older generations are... I don't know if it will change because we say tech literacy, but by the time we get into the future, it's going to be harder. You're, you're right. There's... Very few people interacting with any command line or anything like that yeah. these days. And it's going to be more simple. Like, it, even, it was still pretty easy when we were kids, but, you know, we still had to do a little bit of know-how when stuff was Yeah, and yeah, yeah. Um, I think we there's a real... I was talking about this before, actually. I had a good question when presenting something. It was about growing up in a technical landscape. And I think that something that a lot of people forget is that maybe for our sort of age demographic we had to figure out and kind of understand a lot of the technology very young 
So for me, I'm someone who always gets problems on the computer. I would be the first person in the existence of humanity to have that kind of issue. So it would mean that I'd have to spend, you know, an hour and a half Googling, understanding what the problem is, what's the, the nature of the error, what's causing it, and then really dig a lot to try and find find the problem. And I think as technology is getting better and less clunky, that skill may actually be um, a bit harder to find. Yeah. In the same sense, if you grew up before the time where technology was janky, it's also something that you probably don't um, spend a lot of time Yeah, there's probably there's, there's fair few people that like, they're absolute whizzes with it, but then the majority yeah. of people don't have a clue about it. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But no, I think that's that's a pretty good sort of skill that I think probably a few of us have developed. Yeah. We just need to teach kids to break stuff again. <laughs> yeah. 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 As, as tech becomes more succinct it, um, and more easy to use and less buggy, you know, that skill kind of goes out the window a little bit. Yeah. yeah. Good times make bad hackers. Bad tests make good hackers. All right, well, let's move on to our next topic. So in the last month or so, if you've been paying any attention in the cyber world news, there's been a good three or four zero days or CVSS 10 vulnerabilities going around. One of the biggest ones that we've kind of seen and noticed and that's creating a big impact is this Cisco iOS XE vulnerability, which is allowing users to get remote admin access on yeah i think even on top of the admin i think it was like level 15 which is yeah, the highest like control you you get control of the whole network yeah. type of thing yeah so worrying you know we see it all the time it's kind of inevitable that the big companies have it you know we saw it long 4j was the last one which was kind of like everyone was oh my god this is crazy yeah and we're seeing we're seeing a lot more of these in high frequency yeah than ever before really how would you say that you work around these things? Can you? Sometimes it's like, can you really do much? Well, I mean, there are luckily in in most sort of medium to big size companies with a fairly sizable cyber team, there are people who it's their entire life and job to do vulnerability remedi- remediation. So we have those people at my company, and they're um they're usually a bit stressed, and they're usually always a bit on um, burnt out, burnt out, maybe a little bit, yeah, but they're they're more like pessimistic is the word i'm thinking right. of they're they're a bit doom, more doom and gloom sort of yeah because it's it just keeps getting worse and worse yeah what you have to do to make sure that you're kind of addressing these vulnerabilities as quick as possible is yeah having that team in place those people that that are ready to get those boots on ground and it's also really uh, essential that you have quick remediation times so they're yeah quick that's something that a lot of companies kind of struggle with bigger companies as I'm sure we probably have some understanding of, the bigger the company, the more rigid it is, the harder it is to move things through it quickly. Yeah. So being able to have that kind of agile nature in your company and having a quick change request timeline is really important because a lot of the times, if you're if you're waiting for change requests for three weeks before things get put in, yeah, big vulnerability comes around the door. You need to be able to adapt to that and fix it quickly that's what i'd say yeah something that's it's not exactly related but it kind of is is i've been running a lot of bia workshops recently where we kind of identify the critical business functions Mm. um and one thing that we're always looking at is what's the time period you need to have this function back up at yeah and something that we see is a bit of disconnect even within a company to its other departments is they'll say we need this up within two hours and it's like okay well the technology can only get it up in four hours (laughs) 
So I think that it's a bit of an understanding between departments and having those, it's almost like an SLA, but it's not an SLA because it's within your own company. Yeah. But those timeframes as the recovery point objectives, the uh, maximum tolerable period of disruption. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Having those in place and sticking by them, testing them, you know, don't just come up with an arbitrary number, actually go mm. and test it. Yeah. You, you've got to, it really relies all on how, what's your responsiveness like? So we have sort of metrics that show up at work that kind of show our responsiveness levels and it can be an arbitrary number sometimes, like something useless, but generally uh, the software we use kind of translates that into, into time and bringing that down as much as you can. So as soon as vulnerabilities are arising, developing strategies to fix things quickly, even if it's critical business systems, getting them back up and running, patching, making sure those things are agile, as agile as possible, is a real big part of mm. making sure to combat these vulnerabilities. And I mean, it becomes harder with the Cisco one because they haven't even really released a patch. Yeah. Yet. So I guess that's not, not turn on every single No, just unplug it. Unplug um, it really. But uh, I think that it's kind of unavoidable with situations like Cisco where it's your entire infrastructure. But yeah. if you can not have so heavy reliance on one particular thing, I would say yeah. avoid it. Yeah. Or if you do have the contingency in place, like a common one is, you know, if you can't deal with Cisco because it's your infrastructure. But say one application is not working, move to another competitor, for example. Sometimes that's unavoidable. Other key ones to mention from this month, besides from Cisco... Our Atlassian, if you're using an Atlassian server or a, uh, a Confluence server or a, uh, some other Confluence system, then users are able to create admin accounts remotely and that's control over your Confluence server. <laughs> so um, that's a rough one. As well as the libwebp library. So this is another classic vulnerable library attack. Log4j was the last case of a big library that was vulnerable, but that this are aware of anyway. That we're aware of. LibWebP also got a hen score in the CBSS rating. So that's as bad as it gets. So make sure that you're not using that. If Do you know what that one did? Uh so there's so what the actual error is, is it's a remote users that are interacting with your systems, they can actually invoke a, a buffer overflow error and then run code outside of the normal yeah. outside of the normal environment. So uh, yeah, that's a pretty bad one. Just by the way, for our listeners, we are recording this in advance. So if you have any of these vulnerabilities, just have another look because the Cisco update is hopefully out by now. Hopefully out by now, by the time this goes live. Yeah. <laughs> it hasn't been a new one. <laughs> yeah. Oh, who knows? Maybe it's... Maybe. Termite. <laughs> Maybe. Who knows? Who knows? Yeah. Cool. All right. Well, um, uh, another thing to bring up is uh, if you're at CyberCon this week or last week, whenever this goes live... Hope you're having fun. Looks like it's a good one. Good amount of people. There's probably, you know, this would be a good time to do a cyber attack on a Australian company because do a skeleton crew. Skeleton yeah. crew, yeah. A lot of places are running skeleton crews. Well, well, we're going up on Christmas. Really, that's and, um, that's going to be that could be a big thing. Really, hopefully, no more log four J's Christmas yeah. time. That's yeah. a rough one. You're going to get back to work and hate your life. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah, I guess as well, another thing to bring up is I went to the Women in Security Awards last week. So that was fantastic, really good. So props to the organizers. Fantastic night, great food, yeah, really good shows and everything. And congrats to all the award winners. That's uh, another big one. If you're tuning into the ASA Awards in November, Flynn and I will be doing a bit of a presentation, the speechy 
thing up there. So look forward to that. Thanks for listening. Just a reminder that the Cyber Minutes podcast is for educational purposes only. The views expressed by hosts and guests are their own, not necessarily their employers. Advice discussed is general advice. We promote ethical discussions, not illegal activities. Have a cybersecurity question? Send an email to cyberminutespodcast at gmail.com as we'd love to answer it. Stay cyber safe.